Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing in our series today, Can I Trust My Bible? And uh, I've entitled our message today, Do We Have the Originals? And what I mean by that is do we have those, you know, those first drafts of books of the Bible? And the obvious answer to that is no, but it's a huge issue as it relates to being able to trust ancient documents, including being able to trust the Word of God. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've done something a little bit different. We haven't been necessarily developing biblical texts, which if you know me, that's not like me. Usually we're preaching through a text, but when we're talking about something like this, can I trust my Bible? We're beginning with what we call the external arguments, the arguments that are outside of the Bible about the Bible. Next week we're gonna begin with some of the internal arguments. I'm always amazed at what people have invented throughout history and how it's changed life on earth after that point in history. Think of a few of those great inventions. You might not think they're all great, but because I'm gonna start with gunpowder. But think of how the invention of gunpowder changed the balance of power between nations and what happened in battles. Warfare before that was basically hand-to-hand combat and climbing over somebody else's, you know, brick wall. With the advent of gunpowder, it changed the world forever. It changed power forever. The invention of the engine, whether the steam engine or the combustion engine, same principle, harnessed power in, you know, almost a miraculous form compared to the way things were moved before that. You know, the invention of, uh, as a result of, you know, the uh, railroads and, and airplanes and the automobile and all of the things that the engine unleashed on this planet. The telephone. The telephone creating personal contact over great distances. I still remember when I was in college and I would have to call mom and dad at home. Nobody had a cell phone, and this wasn't that long ago, 15 years ago. Nobody had a cell phone on campus. And uh, you would have to go to the phone that was in the, you know, sort of outside of the dorm rooms and you would have to share that phone and you'd have to call long distance and it cost a lot of money. It was just a completely different world. The telephone did so much and then the cell phone did so much damage. Anyway, another issue. The computer eliminated the typewriter. A lot of young people here probably don't even know what a typewriter is eliminated the typewriter, facilitated an explosion in communications with uh, the advent of email and things like that, things that we take for granted today that really didn't exist that far back into our history. Commercial air flight brought the world closer than it's ever been before, where you can get anywhere in the world in a short period of time and And now other nations and people in other nations are now neighbors in a way that they never were before. But there's one invention that stands out in history that preceded an explosion of knowledge. 
It created a whole new world. I would suggest it's more significant than anything I just mentioned. Its inventor did not die wealthy. He did not take his little business, you know, public as an IPO and got billions of dollars and his children and their children and great-grandchildren will never have to work again. He was not Jeff Bezos. Rather, he died penniless and his invention was impounded by his creditors and yet he changed the world. It was 1436. You know what it was? The printing press. His name was Johannes Gutenberg and he printed what was called the Gutenberg Bible. Now, he actually printed about 200 of these Bibles over a three-year period. 200 Bibles over three years. Doesn't sound like you know, he was doing a, a great job there, but remember the printing press, they had to typeset every page and print those and then put them together and bind them. But once that printing press was invented, literacy exploded and information access also exploded exponentially much like we would say it did with the internet. That's what happened when the printing press was invented, this explosion of knowledge. And for the first time in the history of mankind, and this is how this ties into our, our message today, do we have the originals, the original manuscripts, the original writings of the prophets and apostles, for the first time in the history of mankind, for the first time ever, most human error was removed from the process of copying information. Why don't you think about that? Most human error at that point with the printing press is removed from the process of copying. Until then, most information is copied by hand one manuscript at a time. You get a clay tablet or, or you get a, a papyrus scroll and, and you take it, and with some sort of a pen, you copy that onto another one, and everything is copied one manuscript at a time by one potentially flawed human being at a time. When the printing press took place, if you get the typesetting right, you can print off a million copies, and they're all gonna look exactly the same. So with the printing press, most human error is now eliminated into the future as it relates to copying information. So the question today is this. What happened to the Bible between the time it was written and 1436? All right? What happened to the Bible after the prophets and apostles wrote their works? What happened between then and 1436? Is it even the same book? Was it corrupted over time? Are the stories we read the same as recorded by prophets and apostles? Did some things get exaggerated in the process? Did stories become legends because they weren't written down soon enough? Well, I've got some good news for you today. But first, we're gonna ask some hard questions from the ancient discipline of textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is a good discipline. Last week I mentioned higher criticism. Higher criticism is not a good discipline. Higher criticism was a group of German scholars basically saying, we're gonna assume God had nothing to do with giving us the Bible. How did we get it if God was not involved? That's higher criticism. Those are hopeless people. 
Textual criticism is a very, very good discipline. And basically, it asks the question, how do we ascertain the original text that the apostles and prophets would have given us? How do we ascertain the original wording? Now, why is that necessary? You think, well, just open up your English Bible. You've got it. I hate to tell you this. You don't. It's not perfect. Because what's happened is we have textual variants. Over time, because these texts were copied by individuals one at a time, they would make little tiny mistakes. Word order would be reversed. You know, they'd have sort of little dyslexic moments, literally, and they would reverse words. That would happen. Spelling would be, would, would, uh, be done incorrectly. So spelling that doesn't change the meaning of a text would happen. Spelling that could change the meaning of the text because it might change a word could happen. Sometimes people would look at lines and they would repeat the line by accident because their eyes just caught it, they repeated it. Sometimes somebody might delete a few words or add a couple of words. These are all called textual variants. Now that shouldn't surprise us. It's the nature of ancient documents before the printing press. But we have to ask some honest questions. How much damage has been done to our Bibles as a result of that? How close is our version to the original? And how likely did the, did the original reflect the events that it recorded? How likely did the apostles and prophets write exactly what happened because they did it close enough in time to the events? So textual criticism goes beyond the issue of just variance. And today we're going to talk about the three most critical questions one can ask about ancient documents. So stay with me. It's a little academic, but i got to tell you, this is exciting stuff, all right? If you're not excited, I'm going to be excited for all of us, okay? This is really good stuff. If you're not feeling it, that's your problem, but this is good stuff. All right. Number one, and a lot of information I'm going to use today, you could get this book. I actually know this gentleman. His name is Dr. Don Byerly. Uh, he was a scientist, and he came to faith as he learned about what we're talking about today. He's got a chapter on this issue, and he wrote a book called Surprised by Faith, Dr. Don Byerly. Uh, you can get it. I just want to, I'm not trying to promote his book as much as I'm trying to tell you uh, where I'm getting some of the information from so I can just uh, give proper credit. First question, how many handwritten copies of portions of the New Testament have been found. So a handwritten copy of a portion of the New Testament, we would just call that a manuscript. So how many manuscripts of the New Testament have been found? Now that's a big deal, because portions of the New Testament before the printing press exist in many languages. Greek would have been the predominant language of Jesus' day, and even if Jesus spoke in some Aramaic, most of the earliest recordings are in Greek. That's why we have a Greek New Testament that's translated into English. So you have Greek, and then other places where the gospel went, of course, uh, started to translate from Greek into those languages. So Greek, then Latin, Syriac, Ethiopic, and Armenian are some of the primary ancient languages where we have the Bible uh, in its you know, earliest forms. And the gospel spread through those languages in the ancient world. We also have ancient hymnals, which are called lectionaries. And those lectionaries contain vast amounts of scripture as well. We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later. 
But first, the the first question today speaks volumes about textual integrity. Because when you're looking at ancient documents, it really helps when there's a lot of documents. There's a lot of manuscripts. Volume matters. Let me explain why by using a little illustration from the scriptures. All right, so I'm going to tell you about two miracles. One that you know about and one that you don't know about. Because I'm going to make it up. All right, the first one that you know about is Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's a big deal. Jesus is out there with the disciples. They got a massive crowd, and and it's getting late, and there's not enough food in the nearby town. They don't want to send them away to get food because, you know, they're they're spiritually hungry. And so they've created this scenario, you know, because Jesus is popular. He's healing people. He's doing all kinds of stuff. He's a great speaker. He got 5,000, and it's not really 5,000. If you look at the text, it's 5,000 men plus women and children. So I call this the feeding of the 20,000. I mean, it's like a community out on the hillsides there in Galilee. So once that took place, think of how much testimonial evidence existed. The feeding of the 20,000. Now, there's another miracle that took place that night. Martha had a pet that had a broken limb. So Martha took her cat to Jesus at 11 p.m., and he healed her cat. I don't know why a good God would heal a cat, but Jesus healed her cat. There are only two people who know about that miracle, and the cat is not a person, Martha and Jesus. All right, so you've got this miracle, the feeding of the 20,000. So let's say both are true. Let's say that God was having an off day, he healed a cat. And he fed 20,000 people in the same day. Both are true. Which has greater evidence here? Which has greater testimonial evidence? Miracle number one was public. Miracle number one, the feeding of the 5,000, was actually 20,000, plus or minus. Miracle number one happened in the daytime. Miracle number one had immediate expanding publicity because those 20,000 people did not keep their mouths shut. They're out there saying, hey, Jesus like, took this little kid's happy meal and turned it into like five McDonald's franchises in one moment. That's what they're out there saying. You've got 20,000 witnesses who are just really pumped up versus the private miracle of the healing of the cat's limb that only Martha knows about, and it happened sort of at nighttime, and maybe she shared it, but who cares? All right, which miracle is gonna get publicity. Both are true, which has greater evidence and testimony. Miracle number one, why? Because there are more witnesses who can speak to it. Nobody could disprove it because 20,000 people saw it happen. And you can't convince those 20,000 people that Jesus didn't take a happy meal and feed everybody with it. It's a big deal. Think of the evidence. More witnesses. Manuscript Textual proof is similar. Volume matters for many reasons. Large 
numbers of manuscripts in the early church in the ancient world, even with variants, even with some mistakes over time, allows more comparison to better restore the original text. So if you have a lot of manuscripts from something that happened in, you know, in AD 50, and you've got manuscripts that obviously are not from AD 50, but maybe they're a couple hundred years after that, if you have a lot of them and you understand the geographies they came from, you can actually trace where the variants start and where the mistakes happen. There's a whole science about this. It's a big deal. Large manuscript volume allows you to better try to restore an original text and know what exactly did the apostles write. Also, think about this, and this is more important, large manuscript volume means broader exposure and accountability to what actually happened, all right? So if you get some manuscripts spreading around in the early church about the feeding of the 5,000, and somebody said, well, it wasn't five loaves and two fish, it was actually a can of sardines, there would be 20,000 people saying, no, we didn't have sardines, we had these, these other kind of fish. We had fish sticks. You would have 20,000 people who could fix it, who could fix the story. So when you have large manuscript evidence, there's greater accountability in history to what actually is claimed to have happened. It's a big deal. 20,000 people testifying to a miracle versus one woman saying her cat had its leg healed. Both are true, but they're not equally provable. Now I have a question for you. How do you think the New Testament compares to other ancient documents, textual evidence, volume of manuscripts? Just, what do you think? You know, the Bible's just one of many world religions. You know, you think, well, yeah, it was kind of popular for a while in the early church, but there's a lot of things that we read in history class in school that would have incredible manuscript evidence, right? I mean, how about Plato? Everyone believes in Plato and his tetralogies. Do you know how many ancient manuscripts we have of Plato's tetralogies? Seven. Do you know how many manuscripts we have of Herodotus? I believe he was a historian. Eight. Tacitus, he was a historian. Ten. Caesar, the Gallic Wars that Caesar wrote about. Ten copies from the ancient world. Livy, his history of Rome. Ten. Aristotle, the philosopher, we have 49 copies of his works from the ancient world. Sophocles, uh, who was actually a tragedian, <laughs> how'd you like to be his parents? Well, what is Sophocles doing? He's a tragedy. It's just a tragedy. He wrote plays, they were tragedies, all right? 193 copies of his tragedies. Homer's Iliad, 643 copies. The New Testament, 24,000. 5,664 of parts of the New Testament in Greek and another 18,000 in the other ancient languages I mentioned to you before. In fact, look at the graph. Over here, you can't read it probably, but I can. Plato, Herodotus, Tacitus, Caesar, Livy, Aristotle, Sophocles, Iliad. All of those, there's just scraps of manuscripts from history. The New Testament, the volume of the New Testament manuscript evidence is off the charts. And the point I'm making is this, the best time to disprove the New Testament, the best time to disprove the stories about Jesus of Nazareth was when thousands of manuscripts were being written and copied 
early after the events happened when thousands of witnesses could scrutinize the facts and say, no, that isn't true, but they didn't scrutinize the facts and say they weren't true. They, instead of disagreeing, said they are true, and they died as martyrs singing hymns professing they were true. There is no other document like the New Testament in antiquity. In fact, F.F. Bruce says it this way. He is a uh, professor at Princeton. There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. There is nothing like this in all of ancient literature as far as the volume of manuscript evidence. Well, you say, that's great, Paul. A lot of people believed it. All right, a lot of manuscripts. You made your point. But what if those manuscripts have a big gap between when the events happened and when we have manuscripts? Because then there's a lot of room for problems. So thank you for asking that question, which is question number two. How close in time are the manuscripts to the actual events that they record. That's a big deal when it comes to textual criticism. How close in time? So let's say Jesus died in AD 30 to AD 33. Would you want, you want a manuscript from AD 30, right? I mean, you want what the apostles wrote as soon as it happened. You want them to have written in their diaries on resurrection morning, something's going on here, man. We're missing Jesus. We gotta figure this out. We'll, we'll, I'll write a little bit more after Sunday night. You know, that's what you want. But, but still, I think we'd all agree, if you can't get it from 80, 30, 80, 60 would be good, 80, 100 would be good, 80, 130 would be good, it'd be better than 80, 500 or 80, 1,000. So this question is easy to relate to for us because we have a little game we play as kids. It's called telephone, right? Telephone game, some of you remember that? All right, we're not gonna play it this morning. I see the disappointment in some of your faces. Thank you for that polite laugh. <laughs> That's almost un-Canadian, the outburst. All right, so the telephone game, the telephone game. You know, a, a kid sends a little message to another kid who sends a little message to another kid. They go around a circle and after 20 kids, you know, what has the message become? Well, that's actually exactly the problem with textual criticism, or it's part of the, the question of textual criticism is you get the first manuscripts and then they keep getting copied. You know, how much is the message distorted over time? Because too many people dealing with the message is a problem. Every new carrier can break it and mess up. I went on a fishing trip recently with two other gentlemen from Bethany, Mark Sawatsky and Jim Robert. They'll probably never go again with me after this, but I went with them. There are two reasons you want to have a manuscript about a fishing trip very close to its actual happening, right? Fewer variants develop, fewer mistakes as it's rewritten over time, plus fewer legends develop, right? If I'm on a fishing trip with Mart Skowatsky and Jim Robert, the question isn't just mistakes in the manuscript, the question is the size of the fish over time. If the first people to write it down are my great-grandchildren, we caught whales on four-pound test line. 
See, that's the concern when you don't get things written down soon after they happen. One, fewer variants develop once they're written down and they're copied. But second, and maybe more importantly, fewer legends develop. Now, the people who are critical of the New Testament would say, oh, yeah, there's just, I mean, yeah, there, there might have been a Jesus, and yeah, he, you know, he's a Jewish dude, and thought he was the Messiah or whatever, but you know, none of this is really true. There's just this miracle stuff. I mean, are you kidding? Really? That's so unscientific. It's just these legends developed to sort of make him more than he was, to get people to follow him and obey his religious teachings. Even though he's just a good dude and didn't really rise from the dead and didn't really do any miracles. You see, they believe that legends developed because stuff may not have been written down right away and it just kind of grew I don't, I don't believe that. Now, I, ideally, we'd have the originals of every document in antiquity, like the first time John wrote about Jesus or Luke wrote about Jesus. But if we don't have the original, we'd all agree, I'd rather have copy number three, the third time the story was copied, than copied number five. I'd rather have copy number five than copy number 10. I'd rather have copy number 10 then copy number 20. If I'm in the telephone game, I'm going to get more accuracy after I talk to child number four than when I talk to child number 10. I'm going to have more accuracy when I talk to child number 10 than when I get to 20. All right? We all get it. The closer back in time to the events, the more accuracy. Well, let me tell you about the ancient works that we spoke of moments ago. All right? How close in time do we have do we have actual manuscripts to the events? Caesar wrote his Gallic Wars. Nobody doubts Caesar's Gallic Wars. Caesar wrote his Gallic Wars. The original was about A.D. 50. Or, I'm sorry, B.C. 50. So about 50 years before Jesus' birth, we have Caesar's Gallic Wars. Do you know what the oldest surviving manuscript is dated at? About 850 A.D. or 900 A.D. So in other words, our best copy of Caesar's history is 900 to 950 years after he wrote the original. And that's typical. Aristotle, the philosopher, our oldest copy of Aristotle's works is 1,450 years after Aristotle wrote them. Herodotus, 1,350 years. Plato, 1,250 years. Tacitus, 1,000 years. Caesar, 950 years. Homer, his Iliad, 500 years after he wrote it. Virgil, 300 years. Virgil's works, 300 years after he wrote them. Imagine the potential variants that could have been born in all of those works, how legends could have grown, how there's no accountability for a thousand years of getting those manuscripts right, and I want to make this point, yet nobody in the history department in any Western university questions any of them. Not a bit. They're viewed as works of antiquity that have authenticity so what about the New Testament? How far back do we have copies of portions of the New Testament? Well, I'm going to show you the graph here. Some 15 years after the original writings. I want you to think about that. This is a big deal. 
all right? I, I don't see the excitement I want to see. This is a big, big, big deal. It's a big deal. The New Testament was written between A.D. 47 and A.D. 100, all right? So Jesus dies around A.D. 30 to A.D. 33. The first New Testament books are done within about 15 years, 40s A.D., all the way up to John's um, Revelation. I believe he wrote Revelations or the book of John or both in the 90s. I think just Revelation, but anyway, about 96 or 97 A.D., we'll say 100 A.D. So roughly from 50 to 100 A.D., you have the writing of all of the New Testament. We have in papyrus number 52, so that's the, they, they give numbers to these little things that they find, you know, scrolls, etc. So papyri number 52 is a partial of the book of John. It dates at 125 A.D., Papyra 46 actually has most of Paul's works. So that papyrus has almost everything Paul wrote, I think except the pastoral epistles like uh, Timothy and Titus. So most of Paul's works, Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, all that is in papyrus number 46. It is dated the late first century or about 20 years from the original. So we have a manuscript on a library around the world that has much of your New Testament and it's 20 years old from the original. It may have only been copied once or twice. Think about that. That's unbelievable as it relates to textual proof. The Magdalene papyrus is a fragment of the Gospel of Mark. It is dated from A.D. 50 to A.D. 70, which means it was written and copied by contemporaries who walked with Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. We have complete copies of all four Gospels that date within 100 years of the originals. All of this means two things. There was no time for legends to develop. There was no time for legends to develop. The scrutiny was there. The eyewitnesses were still alive. And there was little time for variants to develop. They wouldn't have been copied that many times before we have manuscripts. I want you to sink in for a second. We've got much of the New Testament dated within 100 years of its happening, just about all of it much of it within 20 or 30 years of the first writing of the books. When it comes to the rest of antiquity's literature, a lot of it is 500 to 1,000 or 1,500 years after the originals. We've got much of it within 20 to 50 years, all of it pretty much within 100 years. As it relates to textual integrity and evidence, there is nothing like it in the world. We have what was written. Believe it or not, but we have what was written by apostles and prophets. Third, how accurate were the copyists? Now here's the question of variance. Okay, so once they start copying this stuff, the good news is we have copies that go way back but then we have a lot of manuscripts that you know, post-date those and so on. There are a lot of variants. 
24,000 hand-copied manuscripts are going to do that in, you know, six or seven languages, 24,000 manuscripts. You're going to get you're going to get hundreds of thousands of variants because they might be little spelling issues or word order issues, etc. All right, so Tim Barnett, this is an online article I just Googled, but he seemed friendly to, to sort of conservative theology, and he talks about his four kinds of textual variants. So when it comes to, we're going to say, variations from the original and potential mistakes, there are four kinds of variants, so just hang with me. They are variants that are neither viable nor meaningful. Now, viable means it's it's likely part of the original. So it's a real viable option that this variant you find in a Greek text actually is viable. It could be in the original. So you've got variants that are viable. It actually could be what the Apostle Paul wrote. And and the other issue is, is it meaningful? Does it change the meaning of the text? All right, so you got variants that are neither viable nor meaningful. You got variants that are viable. They could have been. Uh, uh, in the original, but they're not meaningful. They just don't matter. You got variants that are meaningful, but not viable. It, it, and you got variants that are viable and meaningful. But here's the point. 70% of all variants are spelling errors, all right? It's just like your kids doing their homework. 70% are inconsequential spelling errors and, and a whole bunch more word order issues. And if you know the Greek language, word order doesn't matter much except for emphasis. When you're reading Greek out of a Greek New Testament, you actually mentally put them in order. You don't read them in the order they actually exist in. You mentally put them in order. Order is for emphasis in the Greek language. So word order doesn't even matter in a sentence. When you take out spelling and word order and little things like that, you've taken out the vast majority of the variants. When variants affect the meaning of a text, okay, so let's go to when it really messes up the Bible. When variants affect the meaning of a text where the theological content could be changed beyond spelling and word order, we call it distortion. So now you got a problem. This is called the distortion rate of the New Testament out of the original languages. Bruce Metzger, again, from Princeton, studied the distortion rate of a few religious writings. So the Iliad from the Greeks... There are 15,600 lines in the Iliad. 15,600 lines in the Iliad. There is, uh, from the Hindus, the Mahabharata, I don't know if I said that exactly correctly, the the Mahabharata has 250,000 lines. The New Testament, Christian document, has about 20,000 lines. Now, each of these has a rate of distortion where it's more than a simple spelling or word order issue. There's a problem with meaning. Look at the graph for those three documents. In the Iliad, you have 764 lines or 5%, 4.9% to be exact. In the Mahabharata, you have 26,000 lines that are distorted out of 260,000 for a 10.3% rate of distortion. The New Testament, 20,000 lines, there's 40 we're not sure about. There's 40 where meaning could be corrupted. The rate of distortion is one-fifth of 1%. Well, say, Paul, that worries me because now you're telling me one-fifth of 1% of my New Testament I may not be able to count on. Well, there's nothing else like it in history that's that accurate. And I think the reason is because when people were copying that New Testament, they thought they were copying God's word and they did not want to mess it up. 
I'll take one-fifth of one percent if it's all true. I'll take one-fifth of one percent and stake my eternal destiny on it. Also, because I know you're excited for what's next. Also, there's additional support for the text of the New Testament outside of the New Testament manuscript. So get this. All right, so this is, this is kind of like just a little freebie. I didn't even think about this before, and I've read his stuff before, and it never really sunk in. So in the early church for about three centuries, so till about 300 A.D., the, the people called the early church fathers quoted the New Testament a lot in their writings, all right? So these are dudes that didn't write the Bible, but they're writing a lot about the Bible, Christian leaders in the early church, and they quote the Bible a ton, 36,000 times to be exact, plus or minus. Guess what? They quote the Bible so much, it's enough to rebuild the New Testament, not even looking at New Testament manuscripts. So it's like, it's like saying, it's like saying, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis quotes the Bible so much in his works that I can reproduce the Bible by just reading C.S. Lewis. It's that kind of thing. The early church fathers quoted the New Testament so much we can rebuild a New Testament without looking at any New Testament manuscripts themselves. Almost. Dr. Metzger says it this way. So extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be, the writings of the church fathers would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. That's unbelievable. There is nothing else like your New Testament. And there's nothing else like your Bible because the Old Testament got a great jolt of credibility when we discovered in, was it the, I, I, I want to say the 40s or 50s, the Dead Sea Scrolls. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the Middle East, those were most of the Old Testament books and they were dated about 100 to 200 BC as far as manuscripts, which gave a great jolt of credibility to the Old Testament and its authenticity and its accuracy as well. We have what was written by prophets and apostles. We have it. Choose to believe it or not, but we have it. There is no doubt. A couple apps as we close. First, your Bible has unparalleled textual credibility. The most manuscripts in the ancient world, volume matters. The closest manuscripts to the actual events, dating matters. And the least distortion. We have it. We have unparalleled textual credibility. You don't have the originals, but you almost have the originals. Compared to every other document in antiquity, you almost have the originals. Second, sometimes it's just not about the proof but the heart. You know, I wish everyone could hear what we're talking about today because there's so many skeptical minds that have no idea there's this level of proof for Christianity and for the integrity of the Bible. And it breaks my heart, but I also know that if everyone were to hear this kind of information and had it, it wouldn't necessarily change everyone's minds because the heart 
is, is the receptor of truth as well. It's not just the mind. It's, it's our human hearts. And the best example of this is think about the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, I should say. The 12 disciples before they were called apostles because you got Judas in there, all right? So he's the bad apple, all right? He is walking with Jesus for three years. He is seeing the same miracles that Peter, James, and John are seeing. He, he's, he's seeing Jesus heal the lepers. He's, he's seeing Jesus walk on water. He's seeing everything. And his heart goes dark. And he walked with Jesus for three years. Now that's some opposition research I would have just left out of the New Testament if I were writing it. That hurts Jesus. But it tells the truth that sometimes the level of proof just doesn't matter. Judas is with the other 11 and he's got this alternative experience to faith. I look at this stuff and I'm like, wow, this is really, really big stuff. This just gets me excited. I mean, I'm going from this to the NFL today. What a day. This is true and the NFL reigns. I mean, what a Sunday. I'm excited about this stuff. But, but not everyone is. Not everyone is. Third, and a question. Am I equipping myself to help others answer life's greatest questions? There's a lot of credibility for our faith. And I'm not saying you have to be an expert. I don't believe that. But we're supposed to be ready with an answer. And if you're a little younger in your Christian faith, you say, man, I don't, I don't know answers, but I want to witness to people. Get them around people who do. Get them in an environment where the answers do take place. But we're all just spiritual beggars trying to help other spiritual beggars find bread. And we're all in different places in that journey. We all have different levels of knowledge. We all need to be getting better and better at it because there's a world outside of this building that needs the truth of Jesus Christ and what he offers. And there is absolute credibility in the story of Jesus Christ that you have in front of you. God, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for the credibility of the stories that we've been reading since most of us since we were children. And we often didn't know even though we accepted them, maybe because they came from mom or dad or grandma and grandpa, we didn't know the, the historic credibility of the book that we were dealing with. And I am amazed, amazed at the information that we're talking about today. Because it's so critical to understand the credibility of how we've, got, how we've received our Bible. There's nothing else like it. And it gives great credibility to its claims that it is the way to know you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.